would this morning grab a Bible and open up in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in chapter 40 this morning. We're going to start uh, reading in verse 9 and we're going to read through verse 31. And so we are in a series on the attributes of God. And so we described it in the first sermon series. We can think of this, this study like we're, we're going to a, a mountain overlook and we're going to be perched on this overlook and at this overlook we're going to be looking out and we're going to be looking at God. That's our goal. We're going to be looking at God. And so last Sunday we, we grounded our first our first sentence, we're working through the sentence, God is, and we grounded ourselves in the existence of God. God exists, and we did that from Hebrews chapter 11. And so this morning, we're going to move on in our study, and we're going to hear from Isaiah and his testimony of who God is and what he is like. So receive God's word this morning. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 9. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. And are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. 
He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We need your word's testimony. We need your word's testimony. And so speak to us this morning. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Give us hearts to feel and minds to think. Would you help us this morning understand your word and understand who you are that we might live before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in this study on God and we're moving through it. And this morning we're, we're going to come to our first attribute before I, I give you that attribute of God, I want to set up that attribute with a story. And so a story about a a man who was determined to know God. This man's name was Thomas Aquinas. So Thomas was born into a a privileged family in the 13th century. So a long time ago, think Middle Ages. His family was connected, his family was powerful, and his family was very rich. And Thomas's families had designs for him. He would be, if the plan worked out, become an abbot of an abbey. Now that might sound very spiritual to you, but Thomas's family had no spiritual designs for their son. This abbey was a rather prosperous and powerful abbey. And if you were the abbot, you would have control of the abbey and all of its vast resources. And so the Aquinas family you can think of a mob, wanted to get their fingers into everything and so set their son up as the abbot and then they would grow in further prosperity. But Thomas wanted nothing to do with his family's plans for him. He stoutly resisted his family's designs and he rebelled against them. And he had a very interesting way of rebelling. He joined the Dominicans. So it's a group of men who devoted themselves to poverty and to preaching and teaching and learning. So Thomas's family wanted him to be an abbot and enrich them, but he instead joins an order of friars devoted to poverty and preaching. And as you might expect, this made Thomas's family very unhappy. So most families with this sort of situation in front of them would have had a sit down with their son and would have tried to talk some sense into Thomas. Thomas, you cannot do this. And maybe if the family is a bit more dysfunctional, they would have a yelling match with their son. Or maybe even if they were more dysfunctional, they would have, they would have shunned their son. You're doing this, we're never going to talk to you again. But Thomas's family was exceptional. So as Thomas was traveling on his orders... They snatched him off the road and kidnapped him, and then they proceeded to imprison him for about a year in a castle. And to add to the pure and utter craziness of the situation, Thomas's brothers, he was the youngest son, the seventh son, he had six older brothers, in an attempt to sully his reputation and maybe an attempt to divert his attention from seeking after the Lord, thrust a, a prostitute upon him in his room. And so here is Thomas, he's locked up by his family. He has this strange situation in front of him. What does he do? Well, there's a fire in his room and he takes a brand from the fire. It's on fire and he chases the woman out of his room and then he he burns a cross into the door and it just shows his resolute decision to serve the Lord and not his family's 
riches. And so he withstood his family's pressure, what you might call torture, and he became a Dominican friar. And so Thomas succeeded in his life as a friar. He learned and he grew and he eventually became one of the greatest thinkers in the whole of the Christian tradition. And so his name can be placed alongside Christian thinkers like Augustine and Athanasius and Lombard and Basil and Gregory. And while many might disagree with some of the things that Thomas said, and if you're a Protestant, you certainly will, the reality is, if you study theology in any depth for any amount of time, you will have to wrestle with Thomas because he's that great of a thinker. You have to wrestle with him and what he said about God. And so Thomas's influence had much to do with a book that he wrote. Its title in Latin is Summa Theologiae, which means the summation of theology. And so this book was this ambitious project. Thomas wanted to go and he wanted to wrap his arms around all the teaching of the church, and he wanted to set it down in one book, in one manual for his students that he was teaching. And so you can imagine that this book was massive. It contains over a million and a half words. You can still read it to this day. In fact, it was so big that Thomas never finished the work. He died at the age of of 50 before he could complete this ambitious and massive project. And this deserves our attention. I want to focus here. For something unusual happened to Thomas at the end of his life. So Thomas was in the midst of his many duties. He was preaching and teaching. He was situated in the midst of a university, writing and reading and preaching. And in university those days, they had disputations. And so theologians would argue with one another. And that was Thomas's work. And one day, Thomas went to church in the midst of all of his duties. And during the service, Thomas had some sort of vision. And Thomas never explained what it was. We don't know exactly what he saw or what he heard or even if it was a vision, but but something happened in that service. And after that service, Thomas was a changed man. He was unusually quiet. And then he stopped working. And then suddenly, a few weeks later, he died. That was the end of Thomas. And this change is best described by one of his biographers, G.K. Chesterton. He writes telling the story like this. I quote, His friend Reginald asked him to return also to his regular habits of reading and writing and following the controversies of the hour. And then Thomas said, replying to his friend with singular emphasis, I can write no more. And there seems to have been a silence between Thomas and Reginald, after which Reginald again ventured to approach the subject And Thomas answered him with even greater rigor. He said, I can write no more. I have seen things which make all my writings like straw. So just think about that. Thomas was a giant of a thinker and theologian. He had reached further and progressed farther than any of his contemporaries of the time. He was on the edge of great accomplishment. He was at the very pinnacle of his theological career. And then at the age of 50, he fell silent. As you think about it, this is not the, the sort of thing that most normal people do in this sort of situation. In our age, Thomas would have been pressured to start a PR campaign for his book. He would have been scheduled to speak at all of the, the big conferences of the day. He would have been on this circuit touring around promoting his work and in his name. His name would have been plastered all over social media and there would have been videos and interviews promoting him and his book. But nothing like that happens for Thomas. At this pivotal point in his story, at the pinnacle of his career, all he can say is this, I can write no more. I have seen things 
which make all my writings like straw. Now, the only reasonable thing to say about this whole situation is that Thomas saw something of God that awed him and shocked him and shut him up and stopped him right in his tracks. And we can surmise that Thomas got a glimpse of the glory and majesty of God. He saw something of the transcendence and holiness of God. And this led him to consider in light of that view of God, this majesty of God, that all of his striving and all of his learning and all of his writing, even this great book that he was writing, that would be studied for thousands of years, didn't amount to to much of anything, just some straw. And so the word I think that sums up this whole matter of Thomas's life, the end of his life, is incomprehensible. What Thomas came up against and had to grapple with at the end of his life was the incomprehensibility of God. And that's what we're going to see and study this morning of God. So here's your three-word sentence. God is incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible. And so what does that mean? Well, if you have your dictionary and you open it up and you, you search for the word incomprehensible, you will mean, you will find that it means something like you are unable to understand something or something cannot be understood or known. And so when we apply this to God, we are saying that God cannot be known or understood. The doctrine of God's incomprehensibility. Now we hear that, we're applying this dictionary definition to God, is that what we mean when we say God is incomprehensible? And so, in one very real and true sense, the answer is yes, God is incomprehensible. And theologians in the Christian tradition have put it in different ways. So, Dionysius said, God is infinity beyond being, oneness that is beyond intelligence, the inscrutable one, out of the reach of every rational process, mind beyond mind, word beyond speech. Thomas wrote about the incomprehensibility of God, and he said this, The finite cannot contain the infinite. God exists infinitely, and nothing finite can grasp him infinitely. Augustine went even farther, and he said, No definition is able to properly define or describe him. He says, God cannot be defined. He cannot be defined. And Augustine argued in his writings that if you were able to comprehend this God, so if you were able to understand him totally and define him, you would then be an idolater. Why? Well, Augustine said this with some pith. For if you comprehend, it is not God you comprehend. And scriptures themselves speak of this matter. So we can ground this doctrine in scriptural testimony. Paul speaks of it in 1 Timothy 6, 15 and 16. He says... He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see. You can't see God. No one will ever see him. He dwells in unapproachable light, Paul says. He is the incomprehensible God. And the Lord himself gives testimony to this as well. In conversation with Moses, the Lord says this in Exodus 33, 20, you cannot see my face. Why? For man shall not see me and live. So God is incomprehensible. We have to ask, well, why is that true? Why is that true? Why must we say this of God? 
Well, it's true because of God's infinitude and plenitude and immensity. Just think about it like this. Just as you cannot put the ocean in a single teacup, or just as you cannot put an entire mountain in one wheelbarrow, or just as you cannot go and wrap your arms around the circumference of the earth, you cannot exhaust God or come to know God as he exists or as he is in himself. God's essence and being surpasses all of our understanding and imagination and language. Only God can know himself as he is in himself. The finite cannot contain the infinite, as Thomas said. But here we have to think very hard because we could make a massive error and a massive blunder with the doctrine of God's incomprehensibility. The doctrine of God's incomprehensibility does not leave us dumb and blind. We are not left without God because of this doctrine. For in Scripture, what do we find? We find story after story after story of men and women calling upon God, calling upon the name of the Lord. We find people dwelling with God and enjoying his near presence. Even more, we find people in the scriptures growing in the knowledge of God. In fact, the scriptures call us, they demand us that we grow up in the knowledge of God. And so what does scripture teach us? Scripture teaches us that we can know the incomprehensible God. Now, if you're tracking along with me, your mind is probably not very happy with what I just said there. I said you can know the unknowable God. You can know the unknowable God. It sounds like I'm contradicting myself. How do we square the doctrine of God's incomprehensibility with what we find in the scriptures, with what we find in our own lives? Because as we live the Christian life, we are coming to know God more and more and more. Well, the best way forward, I think, is by illustration. So think about the sun for a moment. Try to imagine that you had this mission. You wanted to go and touch the sun. Well, what would happen? You would get vaporized before you even got close. You you and your little space shuttle would be flying towards the sun and you would melt. You're not able to touch the sun. It's too hot. Or maybe if we were less ambitious, maybe you just want to look right at the sun. Well, what happens when you look right at the sun? Your, your eyes instinctively close, you blink, you turn away. But imagine that you, you are on this mission, I want to look at the sun, so you pry open your eyes and you stare at the sun, you see the sun, what happens? Well, your eyes will be permanently damaged because the sun is too bright for you. But here's the thing about the sun. While you cannot touch the sun or look directly at the sun, you can indeed come to know the sun. We have no doubts about the sun. We know it exists and we know so much about the sun. By the rays of the sun, we see absolutely everything. Today, as you went outside on your way to church, you saw all things in light of the sun. And by the heat of the sun, you are warmed. And this illustration helps us think about knowing the unknowable God. Just like the sun, we cannot come to touch the sun or we cannot look directly at the sun, but we know the sun. We we know God even though he's incomprehensible and we know him in his works and in his words and all things that he has made. And you can use another illustration to further reinforce this and help us think more about this. And so God is revealing himself in in his words and in his works. That's how God lets us know him in Revelation. So think about how a father speaks with his baby. And so there's a father and he's got an infant child. Does that father speak to his child with long, complicated sentences? No. 
Does that, does that father speak in long, complicated paragraphs? No, does that father speak to that, that young baby, that little baby, like he would speak to another grown adult man? No. Rather, what does that father do? Well, he speaks to that infinite in the strange, inarticulate, new language. There's this, there's this strange language that the father speaks with his infant child. And as we think about it, that is what God is doing in Revelation with us. In Revelation, so in God's works and words, God comes and he condescends and he accommodates himself to us. Or to put it like this, God speaks to us as a father speaks with his infant child. He, he babbles to us. And what is God doing? He is fitting knowledge for our limited understanding and our finite intellect so that we might be able to come to know him through revelation. So God is incomprehensible, but through revelation, God is pleased to reveal himself. He's like a father babbling along with his child. So as we think about it, the doctrine of God's incomprehensibility is a doctrine that is a bit difficult to understand. It is a doctrine that if we, if we set our minds on it, our minds are stretched and our minds begin to hurt. And that's good because we're thinking about God and if we could understand God or find him out, he wouldn't be God. But this doctrine is not just a mind bender. It is a doctrine that should heal our souls and fix and mend our broken lives. It is a doctrine that is essential for Christian living. And it's here I want to turn to our text, Isaiah 40 and see how this doctrine works for our good. So go back to Isaiah 40 with me and think about it for a moment. So as we listen to Isaiah preach in Isaiah 40, we learn something about the people that Isaiah was was preaching to. What did we learn? We learned that these people were sick and they were broken. And they were not just a little sick like they had a common cold, but they were deathly sick. And they were not just a little broken like they had a broken finger. They were massively, they were terribly broken. Some might have judged them as a lost cause. And so what was wrong with these people? What was wrong with Israel? And we see two issues in this text. First of all, we see the issue of idolatry. So if you look at verses 18 through 20, Isaiah speaks about idolatry and what Israel had done with idols. Israel had turned away from the true worship of God and instead of worshiping God, fashioned idols for themselves to their own liking, gods that were suitable to their desires and appetites. And what they did is they served and worshiped these dumb and mute and immovable idols. So that's the first issue. Israel's gone after idolatry. The second issue is that there is this deep and persistent pessimism at work among the people. God was giving promises to them and we read them in the beginning of Isaiah 40. Isaiah tells them that God is going to come to their rescue. He's going to pick them up and remove them from this foreign land and bring them back into the land of Israel. That God was going to do even more. That he's going to forgive their sins and change their hearts. But Israel listens to these promises of God. Isaiah is preaching the gospel and they're filled with pessimism and they say as Isaiah preaches, not possible. This is not possible. God cannot do it. So Isaiah records their faithlessness for us. If you see it, look at verse 27. Isaiah says, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Israel is saying, God can't redeem me. So the question is, well, what does Isaiah do for these sick and broken people? How is he going to help them? 
Well, as we listen to him, he takes them back to God and he shows them just how big and grand and great and glorious this God of Israel is. And so he begins this work by interrogating Israel. He sets before them a bunch of questions and we find those questions in verses 12 through 14. So Isaiah asks them, he says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? Enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? What does Isaiah do? Question after question after question. Who? 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 What is clear? Isaiah want to do here. He wants to show Israel the supremacy of God over everything. No one can measure God. He is too big for that. No one can teach God. No one can advise God. No one can lead this God. He is supreme above all. But Isaiah doesn't stop there. That's just his warm-up. He's just getting warmed up in his preaching because he has more for the people of God. He goes on the offensive and he makes bold statement after bold statement after bold statement about this God. Just listen to Isaiah as he preaches to these people. Look at verse 15. Isaiah says, Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. What is Isaiah saying? He's saying, go into all the earth and grab all of the peoples and bring them all together and heap them up into one pile. And what you will find if you do that, gathering up all of the peoples of the world, you will find that they are insignificant as a drop in a bucket. Or that they're insignificant as a few specks of dust on a scale when you compare them to the Lord. They don't even move the needle. Or listen to verse 16. Isaiah says, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. Lebanon was known for its great cedars. It had great forests. And if you read Israel's story, there are times when they go to Lebanon and harvest wood and bring it back to build things within Israel. And what Isaiah is saying, he's saying, go to the country of Lebanon, cut down all of the trees, every single cedar in Lebanon, pile them up, make a pyre. And then slaughter all of the animals in the country of Israel. Every single one of them. Heap them up into a giant offering to the Lord. Burn them. And when you do that, you will find that they are not sufficient for God. Because God is bigger. God is greater than you ever thought or imagined. And Isaiah goes on, verse 22, verse 23. He says, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth. And its inhabitants are like the grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell and who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. And I, Hosea, wants to think. He wants us to think about the earth. Just think about its circumference for a moment. The circumference is so beyond us. We cannot reach around it with our arms. We cannot see all of it with our eyes. Even when we send off a satellite into space, we only can see parts of the earth. We cannot see the whole thing. We're just grasshoppers, Isaiah says. But then there is the Lord, and what does he do? He sits above the circle of the earth. The whole earth is in front of him and not one square foot is hidden from his eyes. So great is the Lord that the heavens, something far beyond our control and understanding, he moves about as a curtain. He uses them as a tent and he goes in and out of them. He moves them about at his own will. And then those princes, we are amazed by men. 
We were just grasshoppers, the most of us. But then there are mighty men. And what does the Lord say? He brings the greatest of men to nothing. They are mere emptiness to the Lord. And all of these statements ready us for Isaiah's grand point. He's, he's priming us. And so Isaiah comes to his point. He questions us in verse 18. He says, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? And then he repeats this question in verse 25. He asks, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. And then Isaiah makes his point in verse 28. He's driving it home with force. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Can you see what Isaiah is doing for Israel? What has he done? He has given them a theological lesson on the doctrine of God's incomprehensibility. Like a skilled teacher, he comes at this doctrine from every conceivable angle, preaching with repetition, saying again and again, God is bigger than you, Israel. God is beyond you, Israel. God can't be figured out by you, Israel. God can't be controlled by you. God is greater than you ever thought or imagined. God is entirely incomprehensible. And that's Isaiah's tack as he deals with these broken and sin-sick people. Now we need to ask a question as we listen to Isaiah. Why would Isaiah preach on the doctrine of God's incomprehensibility? Think about it like this. You're in an emergency and someone's coming in and they're flatlining. That's what Israel's doing here. They're flatlining on the cart. Or to put it another way, the baby is breached. Why does Isaiah go to the doctrine of God's incomprehensibility? There's so many other things that Isaiah could have gone to. He could have gone to the first or second commandment to teach Israel about God and, and their worship of him. He could have gone so many other directions. There's so many other tools in the toolbox. But Isaiah goes here. We have to ask, well, why does he do that? Well, just think about Israel's problem for a moment. What had they done? Well, they had turned away from God and they made idols for themselves. They did that. We, we see that. They're idolaters. And on top of that, they refused to believe God's word and gospel. They were filled with pessimism and doubt. Isaiah brought the promises of God to them and they said, no, can't be. Why did they do this? Well, I think there are two answers to give here as we study Isaiah 40. I think the first answer is this. It is pride. These people thought that they had God all figured out, so figured out, in fact, that they thought that they were competent to go and make a few gods for themselves. They thought they were God experts. We've got the God of Israel figured out. We can go make a few gods for ourselves that will suit us and help us. So figured out that they thought they knew the capacities and abilities of God so well that they could say to God when the promises of God came to them, no, that is not possible. You say you're going to redeem me? No, you cannot. You're not powerful here. You can't do that. And the second answer after pride is boredom. And so these people, because of their pride, no longer saw God as glorious or wonderful or beyond all explanation. And because these people had the God of Israel so figured out, there was no longer any awe or worship in their souls. They were bored with God. They were bored with him, and so they went off looking in other directions, trying to satisfy their souls on the gods of the nations, looking for another god. 
That's what Isaiah does in these verses as he preaches. He gets to the root of the matter of their sin with the doctrine of God's incomprehensibility. He goes after their sin of pride. Isaiah is preaching in these verses and he's preaching so matter-of-factly. He is saying, you are small and God is incomparably big. So what you need to do now is go humble yourself before this big God. You cannot figure him out. You are not a God expert. Humble yourself. And he goes after their boredom as well. He preaches, and again, he's preaching matter-of-factly. He's telling Israel, you've missed it. God is indescribably grand, so grand and great that even the most hyperbolic statements don't do him justice. Did you just hear the rhetoric of Isaiah? He's, he's reaching and stretching, trying to give us a picture of how great God is. And those statements don't even do this God justice. And so Isaiah is telling Israel, just bow down and worship him. Just bow down and worship him. And so as Isaiah diagnosed God's people, he saw that the needed remedy for their sin-sick and soul brokenness was God's incomprehensibility. They needed a dose of the boundless deity. They needed a measure of the immeasurable God. They needed to run up against the bounds of the transcendence of Yahweh of hosts. And as we study Isaiah 40, we see that the doctrine of God's incomprehensibility is not just a mind-bender doctrine, but it is a doctrine that is essential for knowing and loving God. Let me put it like this. If we leave behind the doctrine of God's incomprehensibility, we leave behind God himself. And so what we need to do in our study of God is we need this anchor, And we can think of the doctrine of God's incomprehensibility as an anchor for our souls in this study. At all points, we must remember at whatever attribute we're looking, whatever attribute we're studying, that this God is beyond us. He's incomprehensible. And so we can apply this to ourselves this morning. And I want to do so by asking some questions in light of Isaiah 40. First question is this. Do you think that you have God all figured out? Are you prideful, to put it another way? And the second question goes along with that. Is God boring to you? Is there any awe in your soul as you consider this God? Now, before you brush off those questions, take a bit of time to think about those. Is your life with God, thinking about Isaiah 40, shrouded by dark pessimism and doubt? Are there doubts circling in your head like this? God won't intervene in in my situation. God, he he doesn't hear me. He doesn't know me. I have all of these promises in front of me, but God, he won't come through on them for me. I know better. I know better than to take this God at his word. Or is your life with God thwarted by some sort of pride like Israel's was? Is the matter of pride keeping you from knowing and enjoying God? Is there a thought in your head that you have a sufficient grasp on this God that you can sit easy? Is there a thought in your head that you've arrived at this level of knowledge that you have this God figured out and that you can now go move on to another subject of study? Or, I think this is probably more true of us than anything else is your life with God stunted by boredom are you bored with God 
is going to church, singing praises, is hearing the word of God preached, is opening up your Bible and just reading it chapter after chapter, is that, is that boring to you? Does that make you doze? Or does it thrill your soul? Is there hunger? Is there a thirst in you for finding God and the appointed means that God has set before you? Because he has appointed means where we can find him and know him in his word and the gathering of the saints like now. And is there a hunger? Is there a thirst in your soul for that, for him? Or have you become so bored with God that you can just leave off the gathering of the saints, you can just leave off your Bible reading, and you can just make time for all sorts of other things, like searching out Netflix for hours, or hockey, or sports, or all those sorts of other things we fill up our souls on? Are you bored with God? Are you bored with him? Though we might not like to admit it, we have a lot in common with the people that Isaiah was preaching to. If we own it, we are often prideful in our knowledge of God, thinking we have him figured out. We're often bored with God. And because of that, our life with God, our knowledge of God, our love for God suffers. And our lives become cluttered with all sorts of idols that we end up bowing down and worshiping. And so what can be done for us? What is the solution? Well, it's the same solution that Isaiah saw that Israel needed in Isaiah 40. We need to return to the incomprehensible God. We need to be questioned as Isaiah questioned Israel. We need this. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? We need to be questioned. We need Isaiah's bold statements. We need big statements about God. We need this. Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. We need big statements about God, one after another after another. And we need also to leave behind our pride. And we need to learn to take on humility being willing to say, Lord, you are beyond me. You are so beyond me, I cannot even search you out. You are unsearchable. We need to ask, would you take away my pride and give me this humility? Then we need to set aside our boredom. We need to ask God, would you place awe in my soul? Lord, I believe that you are altogether glorious and your glory is beyond me. Would you fill me with awe for you? Would you show me just a piece of your majesty and your glory? If we really want to know God and love God, we need to run up against the incomprehensibility of God again and again and again. And if God is pleased to bring this about, to do this miracle in our hearts, we will find healing for our hearts and satisfaction for our souls. In fact, we can bank on it because this is what the incomprehensible God does. And we can end here. Look at verses 28 through 31. What does this do for the soul who lands on the incomprehensible God and and goes after this incomprehensible God? Well, this soul will find healing. Isaiah says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. And catch this. He gives power to the faint 
And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even you shall not faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. And what Isaiah is saying to Israel, you're sick with sin, and your soul is broken to pieces. But if you return to this incomprehensible God, he will heal you. And that's the promise for you this morning. If you return to this God, he will heal you. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the knowledge of God that we can, through your word and works, come to know you. And Father, we ask now that this doctrine of your incomprehensibility would be anchored in our souls so that pride would be removed from our hearts and that boredom would be smashed, that we might go after you, loving you and seeking you. Would you ground us in these truths in Isaiah and change our hearts? We pray this in Jesus' great and glorious name. Amen.